If you would open your Bibles with me to Exodus 26. If someone was to suggest to you to listen to a sermon on curtains, I doubt you'd be too excited about it. I mean, if you told people later today that an English guy came and preached, and they might say, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. What did he preach on? Uh, Curtains. (laughs) They might say, well, very English. (laughs) But, I mean... A sermon on curtains, at the suggestion of it, maybe there's a couple of ladies who think, oh, that sounds kind of nice, uh, some ideas, but for the most part, we wouldn't. But it's a word that comes up uh, time and time again in this chapter, because these are the curtains that put together make uh, the tabernacle of God, the, uh, the tent of meeting, which the Lord instructed Moses to, for the people of Israel to build. Uh, A tabernacle, of course, means a a tent, and this is the tent where the the Israelites were to make. It was the place where, symbolically, these Israelites dwelt with God. And I say symbolically that they dwelt with God, not because there was anything unreal about this. It certainly was. But, of course, God, he does not live in temples made with hands, does he? Uh, You know, even the heavens cannot contain him, but this all points to something much greater, and that is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As as Christ himself would later say, Moses, speaking of these things, Moses wrote of me. You see, all these things, as we're told in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, uh, are foreshadows of the Messiah, God's promised Savior, when he would come. And so, uh, this tent here, that they are about to make in this chapter or being given instructions on how to make, uh, was the, it was the tent of meeting, the place where man would meet God. A picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of course became flesh and, and literally pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us there. And, and so in this tent uh, contained the ark of God. Uh, not Noah's ark, that certainly wouldn't have fit in here, but if you think of the ark in the the film Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones, uh, this was the one they were looking for, and so inside you have this golden box, the ark, which contained the commandments, the law of God, and once a year, the high priest, he would lay his hands upon a bull, symbolically there, transferring the sin of the people whom he represented Uh, That's the people of Israel to the bull. And then the bull, of course, would be slaughtered in place of the people. And, of course, this is a foreshadow of Christ, our sins being transferred to him and him being slaughtered for the people whom he represented and all to reconcile us to God. You see a picture of the substitution there. And so at the day of judgment for all those who embrace this good news of what Christ has done, there's, there's no sin to be reckoned for. And so go, going to this foreshadow here of this Old Testament tabernacle, after, after slaughtering the beast on the way in to this tent as, as a substitute for the people, the blood of the sacrifice was then sprinkled on the, on the mercy seat, which was the lid of this golden box inside uh, because inside the ark contained the commandments of course 
So basically the commandments of God are in the ark. We broke the commandments and so the blood is sprinkled on top uh, as in a, a covering, as in a payment, if you like, symbolizing the for the sins broken, to point us that what Christ would do, you know, he would pay for the sins, pay for the law of God we broke. And so, you know, the, the mercy seat is actually translated uh, in the New Testament as sort of propitiation. It's, it's the same word, though. The word propitiation, of course, means a turning away of God's wrath. You see, Christ, by his blood, was our pr- propitiation. He was our mercy seat. You see, by his suffering, the wrath of God is turned away. He, he satisfied the debt for our sin there. You see, what it shows is God is no longer angry with us. Our sins have been dealt with by Christ. You see, this is basically what I'm trying to say is everything in, in this points to it. You see, we, we, the lesson is we cannot atone for any of our own sins. But the only way we can be right with God is through what Christ uh, has done there and so this in this chapter now is the instruction uh, for the tent in which this is contained and I'm also told here that this was the standard a standard nomad tent you know when people wondered uh, about the desert uh, a nomad of course is someone who wonders Uh, through the wilderness, and again, symbolically, just as these people would symbolically go through the wilderness, we're going as believers through the wilderness of this this world here, on the way to the promised land of Canaan. Um, So, you know, just as this was, uh, you see, God was dwelling with them as they went through the wilderness of this world, just as Christ dwells with us is the idea. Um, And so, in verse 1 then, we read, Uh, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle, the tent, with ten curtains of fine twinned or woven linen, fine meaning the best, and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So uh, these cherubim, these angelic beings uh, that were actually on top of the mercy seat of the ark uh, pictures of them were sewn into these curtains here uh, skillfully there's no slapdash workmanship involved here verse two uh, the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits all the curtains shall be the same size now no one truly knows how big this measurement of a cubit is although these people obviously did But it's estimated that the whole dimensions, when you fit this together, are about 150 feet by 75 feet. So I'm guessing two two lots of this room, maybe, something like that. Um, I've heard American commentators on this. They say it was a small tent. And I think, how how big are the tents you go when you camp? (laughs) So... Maybe maybe he was from Texas or <laughs> or those in Alaska. There, those are even worse, aren't they? For them. <laughs> but but basically, it was made up of two squares, around seventy-five feet each. And so, in the first square, as you would go into this tent, you have what was called the holy place, 
And I'll explain this more as we go. But then there was a curtain that separated the two squares. And if you went behind the curtain, you go into the next, which was called the Holy of Holies, where, where the ark was. But verse 3, uh, five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. So two sets of these five square curtains are joined together, and this is basically the roof of the tent. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops of the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain. That is, in the second set, the loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold. Again, no half measures. And a clasp is basically a hook that locks things together. So, like the clasp on an earring or the coupling of a train. So, basically, they're all being coupled together to make one piece to make the roof of the tent here. Verse 7, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair uh, for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. Uh, Verse 8, the length of each curtain and so forth, the breadth. And verse 9, it keeps going with the, you shall couple, join out all these curtains together and the different loops. Verse 10, class of bronze, verse 11. And basically what you've got here is is a, is a, a DIY manual uh, with the roofs of you do it yourself instruction, different layers for the roof of the tent. And verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the acacia wood. So frames holding all this together. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half, a breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame and the fitting together, a tenon, a cut of wood. If When you assemble, you fit some together. Um, verse 18, you shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side and 40 bases of silver. You shall make uh, under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame or two tenons and two bases under the next frame or its tenons. And I won't read for time and I won't read because you won't understand any of it either. <laughs> uh, but it, it carries on here. With the up to twenty-five, with the with the difference of putting it together. Now, if you, if you read all that and you're completely lost on how to build the tabernacle, you're probably not the only one. I remember when I was shared, and I actually read the whole text in our church, and I, I looked up after reading it, and the whole congregation's like whoosh, <laughs> and and it upset one person who was a carpenter by trade, and and I mean he even had the pencil in his ear, and you could see him fitting it all together in his head. <laughs> But, but most of us are not like that, are we? But, but one thing we do see here, though, isn't it? It's a real thing, isn't it? You know, it's not some kind of mythical legend here. I mean, if you was just writing a legend, you'd just say, it's a big tent, wouldn't you? You wouldn't give all this. So we, we see these are real things. But, but also, some people have suggested that the foundation of the tabernacle being silver... Uh, bases of silver there in verse 25. Some have suggested that since silver is often associated with redemption, uh, the price to redeem someone, uh, there's a, a link there and, uh, you know, another picture of Christ's work. And others have suggested since the base is silver, uh, 
that it sits on. This points to that Jesus' redeeming work separates us from the earth. Possibly, I don't know, but it, it all points to Christ, so I don't have any problem with people suggesting these. But verse 26, You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, and, and the bars together, the middle bar halfway up. I'll, I'll skip through the... To verse 30, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan that you were shown on the mountain. So they're given an instruction manual here on how to build it. And so in verse 31 now, we get the instruction for the veil. That's the big curtain in between that separates these two squares. So if you think again, this big rectangular tent is made up of two squares Uh, And this is the veil or the curtain that sits in between. Verse 31, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold and hooks of gold of bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil and the veil shall separate the holy place from the most holy. So within this large tent, uh, again, this rectangular shape made up of two squares separated by this veil that hangs in between. On one side is the holy place, and then behind the curtain, behind the veil, is the most holy place, which verse 34 continues to tell us, you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, in the second section. And you shall set the table for the showbread outside the veil and the lampstand, the menorah, on the south side of the, of the tabernacle opposite. You shall put the table on the north side. So we'll picture it all together in a moment. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin linen embroidered with needlework. So this is basically the doorway on the way into the whole thing. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. The hooks shall be uh, of gold uh, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. So let's try and picture this together in our mind. So again, you have this great big rectangular tent made up of two squares. As you enter the door into the tabernacle, you go into the first part which is called the holy place. On the left, you have the lampstand with the seven candlesticks there, the menorah. As we're told in Revelation, this symbolizes the church of God uh, and Christ dwelling in the midst of them. Uh, You know, God is amongst his congregations, his believers about the world. So as you enter through the door of the tent, I mean, the door itself is a picture of Christ. He said himself, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You know, if you want to find everlasting life, how does someone get right with God? Well, you enter by Jesus. You know, you must go through him. Uh, And so um, anyone who enters another way or tries to is the same as a thief and a robber. But you enter by him, you go through him into the first square. And that's into the holy place. So you have the menorah on the left, symbolizing Christ dwelling with his churches. And then on the right, you have the showbread uh, pointing us there to, you know, dwelling with God. And his word is, uh, this is our staple food. 
Again, Christ himself is, is the bread of life, he said. You know, he is the manna from heaven. He is uh, the showbread. You see, the teaching here is really, you know, the word of God is our life. Uh, we must dwell uh, with Christ. You know, when we think of this analogy, it kind of gets lost on us today. You know, when Christ said, I am the bread of life, meaning, you know, he is our staple food, his word, his word because in, in our cultures, we don't really have a staple food, do we? You know, I mean, I don't know what the staple food is in the U.S., but in, in the U.K., I mean, let's say it's fish and chips, okay? You, well, if you run out of fish and chips, you can go and get pizza. If you run out of pizza, you can go and get uh, curry and something, you know, and it's the same. But, but, you know, to these guys, I mean, it's like in Ireland, uh, potatoes, 150 years ago, potatoes were the staple food. They had a potato famine and, uh, and many people died. You know, this is what this meant uh, to them here with this bread, you see. You know, there's no, no life without this. You see, the idea we must dwell for life with, with, the, with the word of God here. So the lamp on one side uh, and the showbread on the other. And then in front of you, you have this veil, again, separating the holy place to the most holy place. And of course, this is where the ark was. Which, And this is another thing. On the way into this tent, the high priest would do the sacrifice, teaching us the way to God is through, through sacrifice, through the atonement of Christ there. But... The high priest, after offering up the sacrifice, he would go behind this veil, go behind this curtain into the Holy of Holies once a year on a day called Yom Kippur. And he would sprinkle the blood on the lid of the mercy seat there, symbolically, as I said at the beginning, as just as the blood of Christ would pay for our sins, for, you know, for those, it paid for those commandments they broke, Israel broke, in the ark there. Now, so the high priest would do the sacrifice. He would go in and then once a year behind the veil and sprinkle the blood for the people on the, on the mercy seat. Now, if the priest did something wrong, though, on the way in, on, on the way into the Holy of Holies, if he didn't do exactly as God instructed him, then God would strike him dead. Now, this actually happened to some. And... This, of course, points to that the only way we can truly come to God and have our sins forgiven is the way he instructs us, which is by faith in Christ. You see, if someone tries to go to God by their own works or their own ideas, by their own sacrifices or merits, then it's death. You see, one must come to God not by works, but by faith in Jesus. But as I said, this high priest... He would put his hands on the bull. The sins of the people he represented, the people of Israel, would be symbolically transferred to this bull. He would go, the bull would be sacrificed, and then he would go into this tent, and it would be once a year behind the curtain, and then the blood would be sprinkled on the lid, on the mercy seat of the ark, because in this golden box were the commandments uh, that, that we broke, and you see, this is the place where man finds mercy with God, pointing to Christ. But as I said, if he did something wrong, he was struck dead. And so what they'd actually do is they'd attach a rope to his leg. And he'd have a bell, and if the bell stopped ringing, they, they knew he was dead. So because obviously, if, 
if the bell stopped ringing and he died, well, they couldn't go in because they'd be struck dead too, so they could drag him out by this rope. Now, I want you to compare this picture, though, if you go to Hebrews chapter 9, to see the access and forgiveness with God we have in Christ Jesus. You see, this is only the foreshadow. As, as the writer of Hebrews here points out, I mean, people have been tempted to avoid persecution. You go back to this system we've been reading about. But as he points out here, why would you want to go back to that when you've got this much greater here? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, describing what we've just been reading about. Verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which, inside the Ark, was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak of in detail, Uh, We cannot speak of in detail their meaning for time's sake. You know, I'm not going to go into great detail about those things because that's not my point here. But verse 6, these preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their duties. So in the first part of this tent, the holy place, the priests would go in regular all the time, all year round, performing their duties. Verse 7, but into the second, that is behind the veil, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes, and but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Errors of the people, meaning sins done in ignorance, sins they could not help, but yet they still had to be accounted for. Verse 8, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age, the age now. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. The worshipper there is the priest going in, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So the Holy Spirit inspiring this is indicating here, uh, and we are, we are told in verse nine, uh, this tabernacle and these Old Testament sacrifices were were just symbolic of this present age, meaning of when Christ came. But but then we're told here that all these gifts and sacrifices and washings could not even perfect the conscience of the priests who did them. You see, it wasn't as if the priest, Stephen, who did them, the high priest, was forgiven by God. You see, the point is that since the priest kept having to do these things, since every year he kept having to, to sacrifice and go again and do it again and do it again, then that didn't make anyone perfect before God. Because 
if you settle a debt, then it's settled, isn't it? If you have to keep doing it year upon year, then it's not helped. If I said, um, I've got a cure for, you had a cold, I've got a cure for that. Take this every day of your life. Well, that's not a cure. A cure is you take it once, and oh, you may take it a few, but it's gone, is the idea. But the fact he had to keep on doing this year after year, the point of Hebrews saying this doesn't cleanse the conscience, this doesn't uh, take away sins, this doesn't make anyone right with God. But notice someone else, uh, something else here. The only sacrifice, the only payment that God accepts is one that makes you right with him forever. Because if it was any other, if he was only right up until a point and you become unright, well, you'd, you'd always be unright. Because you'd be unright within seconds. Which the writer of Hebrews then goes on to tell us about verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, Christ's tent is, speaking of his body, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of blood, Uh, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal or everlasting redemption. You see, Christ didn't have to go and sacrifice himself once a year. And then, you know, he didn't have to sacrifice himself once and then come back and do it again the next year, like the high priest, because his payment was once for all. It was dealt with forever. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer uh, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, as pictured there, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice there he calls them dead works. You know, when people do works to try and earn favor with God, when people do think, if I do this, it'll make me acceptable to God, he calls them dead works. You see, they don't cleanse the conscience, but Christ does. Verse 15, because we realize, well, if he's done it, his work is perfect. His work is not a dead work. So I can trust in him. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And, and then from verse 16, this illustration of a will is given here. That salvation is like a will. You know, when someone, before someone dies, they may write a will that you're going to get this inheritance. You know, I'm going to leave you this. Well, this is what basically God has done uh, for the believers. Uh, the will and testimony here. This is my inheritance. You, you, well, you get himself there. But, but then, verse, look down to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, and notice this, verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So, again, if if Christ's sacrifice was like that of the high priest, I mean, he'd have, since the foundation of the world, he'd have to be going and sacrificing year upon year. 
He, he said he would have even had to been doing it before it, but he, but he didn't do that was his point. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Don't try and put away your own sin, it's by Christ. But notice this, verse 27, I just love this. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, after this comes the judgment. A man dies once, after this the judgment. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. What did our Lord say? You know, those who believe will not come into judgment. You see, I remember when I got saved, I would listened to a lot of Armenian teachings about how dreadful the judgment will be for a believer. And, and they'd use verses for an unbeliever. And it was kind of, it was like the worst, meeting Christ for the first time was, was put forward as the worst day ever. Now, how does that marry up with verses like there is therefore no, no, now no condemnation with those in Christ Jesus? You know, or, I mean, the way they made it out was, you know, the, the, the parable there of the rich man and Lazarus, it was more, the believer was more like the rich man. <laughs> the way that, I mean, carried by angels into Abram's bosom, that kind of sounds nice. But, but notice this, you see, it's appointed for a man to die and once the judgment. But notice what it says for the believer there. So Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He's already done that when he came the first time. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To, you know, as our Lord said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house and many mansions. I will come again to receive you to myself. He is not coming to, to get an account. But, but it's, already, it's already done there. He's, he's paid the rent. He's coming to save us fully, to receive us uh, to, to ourselves. I remember hearing Conrad Merrill, and he, he was saying, we shall all stand at the judgment seat of God. It's appointed once for a man to die, and after this, the judgment. He said, whoa. He says, well, you have an appointment with God to be judged. He says, what are you going to do about that? And he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to show up. And he says, wow, well, I've got someone to go ahead for me. Or someone has gone ahead for me. And Christ has, has, has paid that sin. You see, I was judged 2,000 years ago there. You know, on the, on the sin when it was on the cross. When, when Christ... Uh, paid when he when he came there those who realize those who are eagerly waiting for him it says so those who realize that Christ has paid for your sin and of course you long for him so let's pray 
Our Father, we just thank you that you have given us the, the bigger picture than the complex, although as glorious as they are, uh, those pictures of those foreshadows in the Old Testament. Lord, we can look back and we can say this means this, but uh, we're told prophets desired you, uh, didn't even truly know what they was writing about. So, Lord, we just thank you for revealing uh, to you, your salvation to us, that you've dealt with our sins once for all. Help others to see this this day. In Jesus' name, amen.